like no one's talking about. I'm worried about Urban's health. I mean, like people talk about his heart, but he has two collapsed testicles from coming <laughs> in his pants so hard That's from true. you know sticking his fingers <laughs> up that girl's butt. So I just hope Urban's doing well. I know it was a tough weekend. So. Ice those balls down, Urban. Ice them down. Oh, these people don't actually want what we sell. They actually want. Simultaneously was working my way down two separate industries because of my behavior. I took a job at six bucks an hour rolling burritos part time. No, I haven't all the time to reflect on this and try to learn from it. I think what I would say is, you know, we already got fairly personal, so we'll just make it a full blown therapy session. Had they given me equity in 1997, I would have stayed. And thank God they didn't. We usually need a couple runs at things to get it right, but we usually get it right eventually. So my name is Dan T. Rogers. I'm 52 and I'm in Seattle, Washington. I have a business called Point to Point Transportation and Point to Point Transportation is a corporate event shipping company. So I don't know anyone else would describe their company with those words, but what that means to us is that we are a shipping company that only ships corporate events. Occasionally, we'll do a trade show or two because our clients sort of force us to do it. But really, we've built a company, designed a company to meet the special needs of corporate events from shipping and freight perspective. And you say you just do only corporate events? Yeah, that's really it. I mean, like folks ask, do you guys do rock and roll or all these other sort of events? And over the years, we've done a little bit of everything. But when you look at certainly the last three years, it's easily 90 plus percent corporate events. And then the other last bit of it is trade shows, taking the same clients to trade shows. I mean, when I'm thinking about transportation and you helping business to business, I'm like, okay, he must be doing concerts and festivals and stuff like that. But you said you don't even really touch that. And then you say you barely do trade shows. And that's the only thing that I was thinking that like, okay, if you do business to business, you must just do trade shows, but you don't even really do that much. No. And so when we, we made some decisions after we started the company to sort of clean up the vision and what we decided to do was get really hyper-focused. And the first sort of part of that was we thought, well, the best work that we do is the work that we do for corporate marketers, because we did a lot of trade shows and a fair bit of corporate events. And what I saw, you know, starting really in the early 2000s is that the most sophisticated marketers on the planet, like the brands that we've all heard of, what they were doing is they were still doing trade shows because they had to, but they were spending a lot more time, money, energy, and focus on their own corporate event. When you see that, it's like, oh, from our perspective, there's different things that we need to do to be successful and create value in that. And so we went all in on that in 2008. Can you give me like some examples of companies or like things that you did to, I guess, make money? Because I thought, again, there would be mainly trade shows, but apparently it's not. First, Dan's definition, the difference between a trade show and a corporate event. In a trade show, it's put on by an association, like most folks have heard of CES. So that's the Consumer Electronic Association puts on CES. And several thousand exhibitors will come and put up some size of a trade show booth, right? So we did plenty of stuff like that. And one year at CES back in the day, we had 30-something people, 30 different customers there. But what I started to see is that those same people, not all of them, but many, the biggest ones, certainly, that were going to CES were starting to spend less money on CES and more money on hosting their own event. That's Microsoft, that's Google. It's those types of companies that are like, hey, rather than count on an association to host this thing and get a bunch of people in, and then we have all of our competition 
And there's some benefit, obviously, to having that big marketplace. They're like, what if we host it and we can control everything and get all the people that we actually want? And that was very obvious. It was super obvious in the early 2000s. And so we kept doing it because most of our customers were still doing trade shows, but the most sophisticated ones started doing more and more corporate events. And so we just started building systems and services around making corporate events from the part that we handled just better and better. I don't want to play favorites or anything, but if the company name is in the event, it's a corporate event. Whereas CES is the consumer electronics show. Whereas if it's the Microsoft sales meeting or Microsoft Inspire or Google IO, I mean, that's an event put on by those organizations for them, by them, for their community exclusively. That makes sense. Cause like I'm looking at the Avian Adult Entertainment Expo. So you, that would be a trade show versus Apple whenever they put those, those big demonstrations like, yeah, so once a year, Apple coincidentally doesn't really do events proper. They do keynotes. Their Starbucks for years didn't advertise, but like Apple still, I think, is in the camp that they don't do events. But yeah, I mean, in essence, for sure, that's that would be a good example. The keynote, for sure. That's the only thing that I can think of that comes to mind that maybe everyone probably has seen. And now they just do the same thing every year and wear turtlenecks, right? And that's kind of yep. their thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think anyone could understand. Like, I could imagine, I don't know. I guess Microsoft has ones, but they, they might have, you're saying, other than just a keynote speaker, that all around an, an expo, they might have different booths, but it's all Microsoft related and stuff. And you help them get that set up. Exactly. I mean, I think part of what happened was there's obviously sort of the big five that have such huge annual revenues that they're, they're sort of their own little sub markets. Who are the big five? Well, I mean, in my mind, I would say, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon and Microsoft. Like, I mean, those, those are the five that, in my opinion, are on a whole different level from everyone else. I mean, I'm not going to discount Prof G, who's got the big four. It's a fantastic book if you haven't read it, but he doesn't, he doesn't list Microsoft. It might be just because I'm a Seattle guy, but Microsoft's up there for sure. They're a couple trillion now or whatever they are. So yeah, they're, they're up there. Yeah. I've heard of all those companies. Yeah. So it makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so it sounds like an interesting business, but it sounds like you might've been screwed in 2020. Yeah. So much like everyone, obviously COVID impacted everybody. Those of us that had anything to do with getting multiple people together, obviously were impacted. So we started seeing our first cancellation on February 12th, and we went the better part of 16 months without a shipment. And to be candid, even the shipment that we got 16 months later wasn't really the core of what we did. So we're now just now in August or going into August will really be sort of the first stuff that we're doing essentially since February of 2022, August of 2021. Well, I mean, 2019 was a full year and was that like your best year? Can you give us like an example of revenues and employees and then tell us the difference that it's been over 2020? Sure. Technically, it was the best year overall performance. We had bigger years in revenue, but we actually made more profit. <laughs> So for, as a business owner, it was the best year. But if you're just impressed by big revenue numbers, we were slightly off. So we did 18 million, a little over 18 million in 2019. And the entire team between employees, our outsource portion of Manila and independent contractors was about 70 people. And we had done just about 3 million before the cancellation started in 2020. And we didn't make it before. We were, I think we we're at like 3.6 million, something like that for 2021 or 2020, excuse me. I mean, it all but just stopped. You're saying like March is when it kind of, you had revenue up till then of 3 million. So you only had a couple hundred thousand really of revenue after COVID hit in 2020. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And quite frankly, if we didn't store these assets that we moved around, we wouldn't have had essentially any revenue at all. 
there's a couple of things, little inconsequential things that popped up that we built for that hit as revenue, but like in terms of like real dollars and what we used to do, like all we had left was storage. Well, sounds like you might've been like one of the worst hit industries other than I can think of like airline industry. I know what else I can think of off the top of my head, but I mean, it's probably as bad as it gets for any industry of what you were doing with COVID. I want to be super clear, especially to like the universe. I think as an individual, Dan T. Rogers, the individual, like I was spared. Like I was spared, but the company point to point and the industry got punched in the face for real. So I got a heads up in the third week of January from somebody I know in Barcelona about what was going to happen. And so from the third week in January, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out what was going to happen. I didn't see working. I didn't see shelter in place. I didn't, I didn't go buy Zoom stock. I didn't see any of that. I just saw what was going to happen to our business. And because we don't do rock and roll and because we only do corporate events, it was absolutely the first thing to cancel because of the corporate litigation and everything else. And because it's their brand, that's the center of the lawsuit. It is proven to be the last thing to come back. And so when it first started, I would have other business owners that I love and respect, but sort of argue with me about that. I was taking it too seriously. And I'm like, look, and with all due respect to whatever football team you like, this isn't Alabama football. It's not the same relationship with the customer. And it's certainly not the same risk tolerance that the largest corporations on the planet have. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to use any of the names, but we still have clients that aren't even considering events still because of just litigation and risk. And you told us how many employees you had in 2019. So obviously if the revenue goes down, it seems like you have to cut expenses. But what did your employee count eventually get to? We did a couple reductions in force, really just with the idea that we were going to try to see if not so much pivot, but just so much. I mean, they were great people and they did a great job. And we were hoping that we could find a way to create some value somewhere. But we ended up with five people by the time we were done in 1231, 2020. Was that hard laying off all those people? I mean, it's just, I guess 65 people. Yeah. I am super grateful as an individual that this is my entire COVID experience is what I'm going to tell you right here. Like the rest of it has all been pretty inconsequential, but I got that heads up in January, got a chance to process it. And I talked to my closest confidant business-wise, and then we opened that conversation up in a couple of weeks to the leadership team. After doing all that processing, I knew what was going to happen. And we were going to talk to the leadership team to figure out exactly who and what and how far did we want to go you know, how much of a chance that we want to take and all that. But I knew there was going to be people that were phenomenal people. One of them was pregnant. It's brutal. And I don't say this lightheartedly. I mean, I say it literally because I had done this in my head. It's so hard to get your head around what you're facing because you just want to keep thinking, well, we'll figure something else out. When we had that first meeting with the leadership team, so we're big fans of EOS and scaling up and all that. So if you're a business owner, you know what that means. So we had a one-page plan on everyone's desk, a laminated one-page plan for the year for 2020. We kicked it off in January and we were crushing it. We we're hitting it. And so I started that leadership team meeting and, and I said, this was the last good idea of 2020. And I put a laminated version through the shredder. And I said, what we're going to talk about now is bad ideas to throw up in the garbage can bad ideas, because I knew we we're going to lay off a pregnant lady. Like, I mean, it was awful. It was awful. And so then you're trying to gently try to facilitate this conversation as you watch these people that you love and respect or your leadership team. And they're struggling with everything that I had weeks to struggle with, right? You know, I had a couple, three weeks to get, go through all of it where, you know, there's sort of the denial and all that, what can we do and this and that. So you just sort of ease them through it. And that was, that was brutal. Then you got to go do it, which is even worse, right? So yeah, no, it was that part 
was tough, but obviously I feel for the folks that had to deal with the consequences of that. I mean, like it impacted people a lot worse than it impacted me individually. And that part, I just, like I said, is I feel fortunate that as an individual and as a family that we were very fortunate in COVID. We can all be grateful personally, but business-wise, I think that's why a lot of people are turning in and it's just like, you can still be happy and like say, I have a great life, but business-wise, this is like, I think one of the biggest things that I've heard as far as like since COVID, like as far as a business being hurt, looked at the percentage. So you lost 93% of your workforce from 70 to five. Yeah. For those five people, what were they even doing? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah, no, we were all playing cards. Now the folks that stayed their family, I mean, like they've dealt with all the stuff that we dealt with. You know, we had a similar semi self-imposed and then sort of doubled down when the recession hit in 2008 and nine. So I had sort of been through this once before. The thing that sort of was given to me by the universe when this whole thing started, it is just the first thought when I hung up with that guy in Barcelona, I was just like, I want to be able to brag about how I conducted myself as an individual, as an honorable individual. I want to be able to brag about it 25 years from now. And with that perspective, I think it was a lot easier to make the quote unquote decisions that you can be happy about in the long run. They come with some brutal, awful decisions in the moment. For a long time, I have felt and known I was the luckiest guy in the room and it didn't change when COVID hit. Like it just, I'm not being flippant. Folks that know me, I'm not. (laughs) That's just how we roll. Like the company's the company. It wasn't my money. It's not my money. It's not even my money when it's in my checking account. It's just on loan from the universe, but it's certainly not my money when it's sitting in the point-to-point checking account, right? It's a separate entity. And so it was my job to try to lead us through that as best we could. And unfortunately, we made some mistakes through that too. You know, I mean, we've made mistakes all the way along since we started. You've made mistakes? Oh, for sure. I'm joking. We all do. Don't worry. Your biggest one is doing this podcast interview, huh? Yeah, hardly. No, I haven't all the time to reflect on this and try to learn from it. I think what I would say is, is that we've sort of survived our mistakes. I think that's the difference between point to point and the companies that didn't make it. I don't mean just COVID, but just in general. And I know several hundred business owners, the ones that make it are able to survive their mistakes. We made bunches and bunches of them for sure. Tell us about like the hardest layoff, because I don't know if you did in multiple batches. Sounded like you alluded to that. Mm -hmm. Just what you do when you get rid of 93% of your workforce, like just tell us how that goes. It was brutal. I mean, I was grateful that I felt like everyone has their own memory, but this was so profound that mine is pretty locked in in terms of exactly what was happening. So we made our reduction on March 2nd. The first reduction was on March 2nd of 2020. And we were a few weeks ahead of anyone else in the event industry, at least in our sort of pocket of the event industry. And I remember when we announced it, you know, we did it in town hall and I just said, look, this is what it is. This is going to be brutal, but I'm just going to rip the bandaid off really fast. And this is what we're going to do. So what'd you say exactly? Did everyone come in there and you're like, hey, I'm going to have to let you all go? This part will be probably a paraphrase, but it'll be with something very close to this. So what Town Hall looks for us is there was about 15 of us in a Seattle office in downtown Seattle, and then everyone else is on a monitor someplace else. And so the 25 or so folks that were in Manila, not all of them were on because that was a 24, 365 or whatever, but everyone that's in Town Hall is in Town Hall. And roughly a third of them are with us and the other two thirds are sitting wherever they're sitting, working. And so we had started to see cancellations. Cancellations had been going on for a couple of weeks. By the time we're in the first week of March, 
people are still talking about COVID in relation to, you know, highway accidents and lung cancer. Like it's not, it isn't what we think about it now. It was still, is it really whatever it is? And I still don't know what it is. I just know what happened. And so I said, look, this is where we are. I think it's going to be 2022 until we see any business. I think the cancellations are going to stop and that the lights are going to turn off in our business. I'm not saying all events, I'm saying in our corporate event business, the business that keeps us afloat. I think we have a hard stop until 2022. And because of that, we have to make changes. So we're going to have a reduction in force today. What we're going to do is we're going to meet with each of you individually, and we're going to go in alphabetical order. And that's because we want to have a conversation with the folks that are leaving and the folks that are staying. What I'd like to ask you to do, because there is no graceful way to do this. My other option is just to put it up on a screen, which I don't think serves any of us well is please, for just all of our sakes, after we have a conversation, if you can keep it to yourself, we'll send out an email when everyone's been spoken to, because I certainly don't want sort of a play-by-play on Teams as this is all going down. And as best as I can tell, we met with, I mean, we just certainly met with folks in alphabetical order. As far as I know, no one has ever told me that they actually honored all that. And so people went back to their desk. And I think what was, what was cool about it is certainly in what happened in Seattle, in the corporate offices, people would come in and we'd meet with them and then they'd go back out and then they'd go sit back at their desk. And no one's like, what do they say? What do they say? I mean, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. It was the thing that made it almost twice as bad is every single person was so incredibly gracious and kind. And about half of them expressed their concern for me. Are you serious? I mean, like, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. So we did that once. And then we ran from March until August with a smaller group. So we had about 12 left with the idea that these were people that we knew did great work and we thought they could do great work and they had done great work. And so we're meeting on a regular basis on Zoom and talking about how we can try to create value in the marketplace. And I will back every one of those people. I will recommend every one of those people for a job. We'll hire back as many of those people as we can, but we just didn't get the same performance. And I just call it the COVID backpack. Between all of the uncertainty, the fact that our inbox was empty every day, like it wasn't working, we couldn't get any traction anywhere. And I'll take clearly my share in that. So then we did another reduction later that year and really cut down to the core team. Did you cry at all while doing it? You know, I got more emotional right now than I did at any other time, like in large part because I was sort of in shock and it was just so obvious what had to happen and it just didn't matter what I thought about it. Having gone through what we went through in 08 and 09, I just knew what we had to do. It was either that or close the business. I already looked at closing the business and that wasn't indicated. This thing is supposed to survive and this is what we got to do. That's like me when I read a negative podcast review. It doesn't really hurt me at first, but then I end up crying at night by myself. Energetic Austin here, and today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Time spent searching for and interviewing candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster, and it's free. There's nothing better than making the right hire, and the faster you make the right hire, the faster you can get back to listening to this very podcast. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know every week, 
nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Energetic Austin here. And in the competitive world of advertising, marketers are always looking for an edge to accelerate their growth, reach new customers, and get measurable results. Today, they're turning to the best kept secret in marketing, direct mail, reinvented for the digital world by Posty. Posty has transformed direct mail by adding all the digital marketing capabilities found in channels like Facebook, Google, and YouTube. The Posty platform is simple and easy. The demo they gave me just showed how awesome the creative is and can be for your business as well. See, Posty allows you to run direct mail like a digital marketer. Posty's platform is a one-stop shop that does it all for you. Build audiences, set up campaigns with A-B tests, approve creative and track results in real time. Think of it as your direct mail easy button. Posty integrates with your CRM, accesses data sets, and builds lookalike models from over 250 million U.S. consumers. With Posty, you narrow in on your target audience and reach customers that you don't find through other channels. Unlike the old way of doing direct mail, Posty is fast. Fully automated printing and logistics solutions allow you to deploy campaigns in days, not months. Posty campaigns allow you to attract new customers, retarget your website visitors, and re-engage your existing customers to increase lifetime value. Diversify your marketing and stand out with direct mail from Posty. Hurry and get your free Posty demo today by visiting posty.com slash millionaire. That's posty.com slash millionaire for a free Posty demo. Posty, direct mail reinvented for the digital world. I think the rest of another portion of life is so awesome. And that part has been so spared. That's the important part. And that's why I like to talk about some personal stuff too, which we haven't even really talked about, but we can tell you're positive outside of this. Cause if people are all wrapped up in one thing, like your business and you have no family and you know, you have no friends and your health sucks, then you're really screwed. But it sounds like everything else is at least kind of kept in balance to get you through this, right? Yeah, that was a process too. Like going into 08, 09, it wasn't nearly as good as it was in terms of the rest of the life. Not that it was bad, but it wasn't. You know, there was been a learning process on that part too, for sure. One thing that may or may not work for folks, but it's the way that I viewed it is, so I have a risk tolerance for money that I haven't made that's probably too high. Like would probably melt most people's teeth. If it hasn't hit my personal checking account, like it's almost fearless when it comes to putting money on the line if we think it's a semi-decent idea. After it makes it to my personal checking account, I have almost no risk tolerance at all because of what it's taken to get there. And so I can't stress enough that, I mean, there was millions of dollars of balance sheet destruction that happened at point to point, but it wasn't mine. I mean, yes, I'm 100% shareholder and blah, 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 but I've just never viewed it as mine. There was other parts of the business I wasn't nearly as separated from. There's way more of my ego wrapped up into other parts of the business, but my ego wasn't wrapped up into the balance sheet or the P&L of P2P as much as it was in other parts of the business. There was way more mourning and loss over other parts than just the financial part. You're able to weather it through because you're still in business today, right? Yeah. By the grace of the universe, we had some of that recurring business. We had some other things pop up that were smaller parts of sort of the corporate event business that with our new scale, we're a little bit more impactful that kept the lights on. At this point, knock on wood, it appears that we've made it through and we're starting to see some trade show activity. So we're doing trade shows again, which is fantastic. And we have hopes of doing some corporate events. 
As far as this business, did you have another supplement business or something like that got you over the hurdle? We don't necessarily have to dive into details of it yet. Maybe we can leave that as a cliffhanger because are you doing okay today now overall? We're doing well. I mean, one of the things that I did with all the time between entrepreneurs, organization, EO and strategic coach, I mean, I know a bunch, like several hundred business owners. And so the ones that I knew the best, uh, I reached out to um, early in COVID and said, you know, hey, I'd love to be helpful. My challenges are horrific, but they're quite simple. I would love to be helpful if I can. And so I did some pro bono consulting and, they, and I think they got what they paid for, but it was fun. And then there was some stuff that led to some things and that was sort of cool too. And then I had a couple people sort of independent of each other, both start to lean in on us on some sales stuff. And so that actually turned into a business that we launched in February of 2021. And how's that business going? We amassed monthly revenue in superior of the first business <laughs> inside of a hundred days. So it's, it's going well. So you did that. When did it officially launch? I'm calling our launch date the day that we sent the first invoice. It's not articles of incorporation launch, but it's real launch between February 22nd and May 22nd. Yeah. We reached annual revenue. If we don't add any more customers or whatever, we're just about a half a million bucks, hundred days in. And there's a lot of legs there. We feel good about that early and still really trying to figure out exactly what we're doing. But the response that we got from the handful of people that came right across the street has been really strong. So now we've stopped taking on new customers to really just make sure we can deliver on the promises that we have. Why don't you just tell us the name of that company is and just give us a little bit more detail, then we'll dive more in, I guess, later in the episode of how you're able to make that transition. I'm glad you brought up, it sounds like you had a lot of free time. So that's how you were able to, I guess, start a new business and make money. But just tell us a little bit more of what it is. Thank you for framing that up because in talking and trying to be helpful to other people, I didn't know it, but what they told me eventually, and I'm a slow learner, but what they told me was, Dan, the fact that you made the Inc. 5000 seven years in a row without salespeople is extraordinary. Teach me how to do that. And I was like, oh, I didn't think it was that big of a deal because I had lived through it and we had done so many other things that I didn't really sort of give myself full credit for it. What we did, I didn't think that that was that special. And that was the part when they're like, how do I make the Inc. 5000 seven years in a row without salespeople? I was like, oh yeah, I think we can figure that out. So talk to the folks that you know and trust that you can be helpful to. <laughs> See what they think is valuable about your business, not what you think is valuable. Because what I will tell you happened is I reached out to the events community and I thought I could be helpful in a way that I thought I could be helpful. And they made it clear that they didn't think I could be helpful. But by the grace of the universe, some business owners said, hey, yeah, we think you can be helpful. And we found something. Let, let the marketplace tell you how you can be helpful. It's basically like a consulting company where you're trying to help people expand their sales without salespeople. That's exactly it. So the sort of target audience for us is you got to be viable. I'm not a rocket scientist. So it's like, if you've got a business and you're viable, but sales are flat, we can fix that. Guarantee it. If you're not viable, I can't help that. But if you've been viable and your sales have stalled, I have supreme confidence that we can fix that. We've codified it. I feel really strong. Oh, you got people excited. We'll wait till the end to talk about it. But one more thing before we do, with the point-to-point -point transportation, you had no salespeople? That's correct. Did a lot of your competitors have salespeople? Our largest competitor was just sort of like market ignorance or apathy. In all seriousness, probably like two or three other companies that sort of do what we do. Mostly what happens in our business is an agency, a creative agency, a production company, or somebody that has more of the client's mind share just manages all of this for them. And they do a fine job, but because all we do is focus on this part, it's not surprising that we're substantially better at this one slice than all of the back office stuff of an event. 
So that's, it's usually just folks are spending more that they don't realize that they don't have to spend as much. And I have supreme confidence that if anyone leaned in on it, they would figure it out. But it's just, they're so busy delivering for the customer in other areas that they haven't solved this part. So that's what we did is we just focused on it and tried to crush it. I can't wait to hear your secret formula that you'll be giving only our Patreon members, right? <laughs> exactly. That's it. You said you're not a rocket scientist, but it sounds like you might be, Dan, with this special formula that can get rid of these salespeople and increase our sales at the same time, huh? Yeah. Well, we'll try. We'll see. All right. Well, we all look forward in suspense to hearing how you made that transition. But why don't we go ahead and rewind to how you started either this company, P2P Transportation, or if you want to go back further, tell us what year you want to start and how old you are. I think it's relevant. My first real job where they took taxes out of it was my sophomore year in high school delivering appliances. And that was good. You know, I was a wrestler, so I was sort of qualified. That's 1985, class 87. So then I found that the moving furniture paid slightly better, but more importantly, it came with more overtime. So I moved a lot of furniture. If I go to class, it's a huge if. If I go to class, I usually do really well, but getting me to class is sort of difficult. So like I never graduated ever. I tried several different stints at colleges. Even high school? Oh, sorry. I did graduate high school in large part because Redmond High School couldn't track well enough that I wasn't there. <laughs> well, what were you doing all the time? Working? Ah, uh, not so much working. I mean, that's a different podcast. You're smoking dope? Ah, uh, no, mostly drinking. Weed came later after high school. But that much in high school, you're drinking that much where you're on the wrestling team. Wrestlers by far are the most dedicated out of any high school sport, I think, other than maybe swimming, you know, like how much they have to train and stuff. But sure, that didn't slow you down or I don't know if you stopped wrestling. No, no, I'll, I'll get I'll get super real because there's only one story, man. So, no, halfway through junior year, I quit wrestling and I used to drink on the weekends and then I would drink after school. Then I would drink before school. Then I would drink during school. That wasn't nonstop in high school, but it was as much as I could. Like I didn't figure out distribution right away, right? So we had to get through that. I went to a four-year college right out of high school and my first roommate was a fifth-year senior. Alcohol and distribution was solved. And then a semi-practical chemist, like, you know, there's some that speed you up and some slow you down. If you sort of dial it in right, you can sort of function. And so I did that for a while. And moving furniture was definitely a lifestyle choice. It supported my lifestyle for sure. There's a little lower bar entry to moving furniture. That's why I moved a lot of furniture more than anything else. Because you're doing cocoa? No, 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 not so much that. It was more smoking weed during the day and then drinking as much as I could when I could and some other things, but mostly that. I mean, I wasn't all hyped up or anything. I was intoxicated for quite some time, part of a couple of years. Then by the grace of the universe, made some decisions to go a different direction. One second. What does that mean? I got sober in an anonymous fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what it means. So AA? I wouldn't know what to call it other than anonymous fellowship. But did you go there your choice or did someone say you had to go there by the law? Again, I'll just keep it super, super real. So I got pulled over and part of the deferred prosecution that I was taking was to go to these meetings twice a week. And I was too, as smart as I thought I was, I wasn't smart enough to figure out that I could have probably just signed the slips and not go. And I went anyways, and they had an answer there for me. That answer definitely changed my life for sure. What was the thing that switched your mind? Because I mean, there could be other people listening now too. I mean, we want to help people with business, but it is curious. I mean, dude, I think everyone, not everyone drinks in high school or even in college, but it sounds like you were like on another level, especially high school. That sounds like ridiculous, like drinking before high school and stuff. I mean, really what it boiled down to is I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but in the rearview mirror, it's crystal clear, is 
being sober was my problem and alcohol got me to a place that I didn't much care for life. And then that started to have consequences, but I still didn't really think I had a problem because I didn't know what my problem was. And what I found by the grace of the universe was that if I did basically everything that I was doing before 180, like I had the right skill set, I was just aiming at the wrong target. And when I flip it 180, I get the different results, right? And so I was trying to serve myself semi-well. It was a pretty small life, but I mean, it was mostly just about taking. And I don't mean like stealing stuff, but just, you know, what's in it for me. And after that change happened, the directions were clear. It was about what can you bring and what can you do for other people? And to the extent that I do that, I mean, life is damn near close to perfect. And my quote unquote professional career reflects that. Like, I mean, that's the secret. Just go try to add value and see how that works out. Yeah, but was it one meeting that you're like, ah, uh, like you see everything and everything's good to go? Or did, was it like a slow change after going to these meetings? So what happened for me, and it's a little different from everybody, is the first time I went there, I knew I was in the right place. And I've heard that multiple times. But for me, that was horrific because it wasn't where I wanted to be. And there was people involved and I was afraid of people and all that. I mean, all this stuff, like it wasn't good news, but I still knew that that's where I was supposed to be. And I can't tell you why, because it just happened, but I kept going. And then eventually I met some people that had a process that was written down and I was just dumb enough and willing enough to follow the directions. And they said, Hey man, if you do what we did, you'll get what we got. And that's been my experience since 1994. I mean, when I do it, I get it for sure. hundred percent. Doesn't ever not work. Yeah. So it was 1994 when you quit drinking? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Have you drank since? Oh God, no, no. By the grace of God. No, absolutely not. Damn. We even gave up Diet Coke along the way. <laughs> Who's we? Me and the boss, me and my higher power. Yeah. I don't have to ride alone anymore. So we're always plugged in. Who's your higher power? I just refer to it as the boss. In that walk of life, I'm fortunate that I'm just a link in the chain. When you're talking to other links in the chain, traveled a lot in and out of business meetings and all that other stuff. I found if I started dropping the word God around, it would sort of draw attention in airports and stuff. And so to me, the right relationship is the boss. You can call it God, you can call it the universe, call it whatever you want. But I just call it the boss because that's sort of the right relationship. You know, like they're the employer, I'm the agent. That's what I refer to my higher power as. It's just the boss. So are you Christian? I am not currently affiliated with any organized religion. But what I would say just to folks in general is I think there's several thousand years of captured wisdom on the human condition in all religious faiths. And to not look at that and try to steal the wisdom from that, I think is not a good strategy. I try to learn. I have friends in many different faiths and we align completely except on semantics. <laughs> and I learn from them and I hope that they can learn from me as well, right? I understand what you're saying, but you don't go to any, like when you went to the anonymous meetings, right? Mm -hmm. That helped because you're part of some type of organization or you're not, yep. do you not go to anything religious at all? There is no organized religion currently in my life. My oldest attends private religious school and when the youngest one is another year older, he will as well. Because I think providing that framework is good for children. That's my viewpoint. Do whatever you want with yours. But I think the basic religious framework for the human condition for a child is a very healthy thing. And then when they're adult, they can question that framework and either reject it, keep it, or create their own. But having a framework to get through life is, I think, for me, when I answered that question, and it was a thoughtful question. I went to the boss and reflected on for several months. It was, hey, for me, for the fingerprints that I'm going to leave on my children, I feel very comfortable making sure that they have an organized religious framework until they're old enough to question it for themselves. And I'll tell you, the first time I saw my son, my oldest son pray, I felt great. 
I don't even know who or what he's praying to. And I don't care. The fact that he's not alone is awesome, right? Because I can't be there for him this whole time. You know what I mean? And that's what the higher power does for me is that that's why I say we, people say, you say we all the time. Who are these people? I was like, because I'm not by myself, man. It's being the boss. Like I'm plugged in. I mean, not hundred percent because I'm human, but like when I am plugged in, it's a we thing. It's a little out there, but yeah, I told you I keep it real. So I appreciate you asking. Is he right next to you right now? It's not even so much of that. He's not gender. Is that what you're saying? Before we got into theys, I used to just say he, she, it. <laughs> you know? I'm offended by it. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't heard. I haven't really converted over. I will. <laughs> promise. I will convert to they and them as best I can. But for years, I've been saying he, she, it. Yeah. The boss. Well, you're in Seattle. You kind of have to convert. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm converting. Sorry. Yeah. We're all allowed to have our own thought patterns. But I think once we got to that, I'm like, eh, you're a male or female, but you know, whatever. If it makes them feel special. I appreciate you touching on that because it seems like it was 1994. Is that when you totally got sober and everything? You had been employee up to that point? Prior to 1994, in all seriousness, I was working my way down the restaurant business. I had started in nice restaurants and I was working in fast food and I worked in labor jobs, like more sort of skilled labor. And I was considering the most dangerous, least skilled labor jobs in 1993. Simultaneously was working my way down two separate industries because of my behavior. I got sober in 1994. I took a job at six bucks an hour rolling burritos part-time at a restaurant that wanted to be Subway with burritos. Two and a half years later, didn't own a single cent of equity or anything like that. But through the generosity of the ownership allowing me to do stuff, I had opened 50 plus restaurants, done all this crazy stuff, like just trying to be helpful. And then the moving company that fired me. Wait, why'd you get fired? I don't understand. Because you didn't you help expand big time, you're saying? No, no, no. So I went to work for a burrito rolling company. So the moving company that I had worked at prior to getting sober had let me go because if you live that type of a lifestyle, it's not a good idea to drive a truck. Like the state of Washington doesn't like it. No one likes it. So they did the right thing and they let me go. So they came back to me two and a half years later and said, Hey, we we're hoping at some point you'd graduate college or do something. Obviously this isn't going to happen, but you're lighting the world on fire in this restaurant thing. Why don't you come work for us and sell transportation? So I went to work for that company and then bought the company five years later. It became point to point. What was the name of the company then? Because it's just easier to, if you give us names, to track it. It was one of the four agencies of specialty moving, which was when I started was a Mayflower van line agent. And when I acquired one of the four agencies that the guy that I worked for owned, it was an Atlas van line agent. So were you doing a good job moving before then? It just, you couldn't stay sober? How I would describe it is, and it probably wouldn't have lasted this way, but at the time I was still functional. Like I couldn't pass the UA. I don't know what a UA is. What's a UA? Couldn't pass the drug test. Oh, you're in analysis. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was not legally, I shouldn't have been doing it, but like from a performance standpoint, I wasn't even 24 yet. Like, I mean, I was still fairly bulletproof. So I was semi-functioning, if you can call that functioning, right? So it hadn't hit that level yet, but they did the right thing and said, hey man, like you're a massive risk and you need help and like go figure your stuff out. So that's definitely the way it should have played. But they'd always sort of hope that I would get involved in sales at some point. They hadn't really said it, but that's what ownership had expressed. You know, after the fact, they told me that, hey, when you're working for us before, we saw a promise. We thought you could do some stuff, but you were such a gong show. Like, you know, we had to do what we had to do. But then I get sober, go do all that great work and the great opportunity with the burritos. And then they came back and said, hey, why don't you come work for us? I said, all right. And so I got into sales and it took off from there. And what, were, what was the burrito place called? 
Uh, it's called Taco Del Mar. It's still around. The ownership that I work for is no longer involved. It's different ownership now, but yeah. Right. I think most people have heard of it. I mean, I've heard of it on the East Coast. So, and I think it's pretty much West Coast. The last thing I did was help lay the groundwork to go into Boston when I left. Yeah. We, we were in Seattle, Portland, and then we were reaching into Boston. Well, why do you go back to the moving company? Like, we tell us like what your difference was in money too. I guess like, were you making a good money with Taco Del Mar? Sounds like you must have if you were expanding it big time. Here's what's funny. So before getting sober, I don't remember exactly what the hourly wage was, but people were supporting kids, right? You know, they make a little bit of money as a truck driver, furniture mover. I mean, I had more than I could spend in the little life that I had, but I was miserable, obviously. And then I get sober and at six bucks an hour, obviously that's not a lot ever. It wasn't a lot even in 1994, but I was unbelievably happy, right? And so I learned early on that money wasn't going to change anything. And I'm not taking any shots at Taco Del Mar, but I think the most I ever made at Taco Del Mar was like $42,000 a year. And I don't share this often, but I'm happy it's all factual. Before I came to work as a salesperson, I was asked to go talk to a recruiting agency in the restaurant business because they said, if you're going to come do sales for us, you have to commit to three years because it might take that long to be successful. You can't come and start and stop. And three years from now, you're not going to be this hotshot that's the number one employee at this fast-growing fast food chain. You're going to just be some guy that didn't make it in sales, which is unbelievably generous of them to make sure that I was making this fully informed decision, right? So I actually talked, I was getting called on a fairly regular basis because of what was happening at work by recruiters to try to get me a job for somebody else. So I finally called one of them back and said, all right, tell me what you can find. I got two formal job offers in the restaurant business before I accepted the job in sales that were over double what I was making at Taco Del Mar. And I'll tell you, I would go back and do Taco Del Mar. I'd borrow money to do Taco Del Mar again. Like I learned so much at Taco Del Mar. I'm still learning stuff. I mean, first of all, it demystified business because we went from when I started, we had 11 employees and three of them were owners. And when I left, we had over 300 corporate employees and like seven franchise groups. I mean, it was insane. It was absolutely, totally insane in two and a half years. At one point, we're open a restaurant every two weeks. I mean, it was awesome. I'd borrow money to do it again. It was fantastic. And they're paying me. So the 42 grand was gravy. Like, I mean, it was awesome. It's totally awesome. Energetic Austin here. Are you tired of doing it all at your company? Are you looking for an easier way to onboard and manage remote employees? Well, JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. With JustWorks, employees can onboard themselves in minutes with simple software that makes a great first impression. You can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and handle payroll and PTO requests all on one platform. Plus, it comes with JustWorks expert 24-7 supports for you and your team. JustWorks can relieve you of some of the administrative work you don't love, like taking notes on our podcast episodes, or things like running payroll, managing benefits, and figuring out state-by-state rules and regulations. JustWorks makes it simple to hire and manage remote employees across all 50 states. With JustWorks, you can onboard new employees with ease in an intuitive online platform. You can take the guesswork out of employee and tax regulations and requirements. You can access national health insurance plans so your employees can get coverage no matter where they live. 
You can also get help setting up sick leave policies and administering harassment and discrimination prevention trainings that comply with state and local requirements. Save hours on time tracking the sinks with your payroll, plus access 24-7 expert support as well as certified HR consultants to get answers to your questions whenever you need them. Manage your remote team and run your business with confidence. Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com for more info. You know, when it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless buzzword free lessons of a straightforward modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real world track record of decade upon decade of actual exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. So you left because you got paid twice as much to go to specialty moving systems, the company you were at before? So while I was there, it was fantastic. The part that was starting to get a little old was you're tired of eating tacos? No, no, not, not so much. <laughs> that I could do. I could still do rice and beans, man, for sure. I mean, I trusted him. I'm actually still very close with one of the owners. I still trust him today. But it was like, look, man, I need to know what's in it for me. I mean, I knew I was not getting paid what I was quote unquote worth, but I also could see firsthand that they're just taking all the cash and dumping it back into the business because it's growing, right? With growing business like that just burns cash. So I knew that they weren't getting rich. We were all sort of investing, but I wasn't, I didn't have equity. Had they given me equity in 1997, I would have stayed and thank God they didn't. But because they didn't offer and I didn't directly ask for it, it didn't happen. So I entertained the other restaurant jobs, but I thought sales and unlimited commission, sign me up, man. So that's what I did. I went initially to sort of just chase, you know, some level of financial freedom, but we got the financial freedom without chasing the money. So when you're talking about we, are you talking about the non-gender next to you again right now, or you're talking about somebody else? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd say it's more like part of me. And But the only reason I ask when I say weeks, because like you're single up to this point as well, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah. I didn't know if you got in a relationship. Your wheeze, your wheeze. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, I don't, there's almost always somebody else involved. Very few things happen solitary, but most of the time it's part of my mindset is when I show up as an I, it's different than when I show up as a we, like, it's all I can tell you, man. Like it's, and I've done both and I'll do both today. Talk to me this afternoon and I'll be an I for sure, man. Like I've not mastered this stuff. I'm still in process on it. I'm in a much better spot when I show up as a we, regardless if I got somebody with me or not. It's a better mindset if I'm thinking, how can I be a part of this and how can I be helpful versus what do I need to get out of it? And I got a lot of experience on the I side for sure. But you had no human body other than yourself living at your own place. <laughs> That's correct, sir. I'll try for the purposes of clarity to move off of that. We'll see how we do. Well, hey, I'm pretty good at trying to clarify, right? Yep. Yeah. I think now everyone knows we're on the same page. So yeah, appreciate that. So you and your human body self went to specialty moving systems and then did you blow it up right away? Not to talk too much S, but sort of like what happened is almost right away, there was some level of success in large part, because even though I'd done a couple, three years of burritos prior to that, I had a lot of time like physically doing the work that I was selling. So I had massive credibility in terms of like, I really understood what we were supposed to do. And so I didn't really know how to sell or how to price it or anything like that. But I think between pity and credibility, like we closed some people. And then as I got better, 
as there was more success in that, then I was able to sort of refine precisely what was happening. And because there was success right away, I had sort of the opportunity. I wasn't making bazillions of dollars, but I was making enough that I didn't have to worry about money. And if you don't have to worry about money and you're more concerned, are your customer service people happy? Or do we have enough customer service people to honor the promises that we're making to these people? What I started noticing was, is there was a handful of customers that despite the fact that we could do good work for them and you know they had big things for us to move, mostly store fixtures and stuff. So we did Starbucks rollouts and some other things. The people that were on our customer service team were not bad people. They were good, kind-hearted, generous people. But we had a couple really, really difficult customers. And I didn't understand why because everything on paper made sense. And then I realized it was like, oh, these people don't actually want what we sell. They actually want to sit in our operations department. And so one of the customer service people in particular was this woman, Betty Jean. And Betty Jean was great. She's phenomenal. But Betty Jean would get really frustrated when the customers would like sort of second guess how she was doing things. And it wasn't because she was some petty person that couldn't be questioned. It was because it's like, look, we're doing all this for you. If you want to manage it at this level, you shouldn't be working with us. The people that work with us just like give us the details and we do all of it. You can hold us accountable and we can report on it. We can do all this other stuff, but like only one person can really manage the details. If you're going to second guess every little decision that we're doing, that's not who we can do our best work for. And that became obvious actually really quick. I mean, I was probably like within two years. And so when I was quote unquote, a salesperson, I didn't talk to anybody that wasn't a viable prospect because in that business, it's big stuff. Like it's hard to hide big shipping, right? So, I mean, it was obvious if they were a potential prospect. So I didn't have to worry about that. That part was easy. You could see it, literally see it. So then my job was to qualify them of, do they really want to give us the work that we can do and be great for them? And so it's not surprising in hindsight, we got more and more people that wanted to give us more and more details for us to manage. And as we managed more details, we did phenomenal work. That's what led to the success. But it wasn't so much sales in terms of the way that I hear sales being talked about. It was actually more about, are they really a fit for what we do? And you first have to be clear on what you do, obviously. So that's how there was success in that. So to be clear, with the specialty moving systems that you were a part of, were y'all doing just events then or were you like a typical moving company? Just tell us a little bit more because I want to make sure that we understand if you evolved eventually because you told us this company eventually became point-to-point transportation, but what was it when you started there? Yeah, so it was sort of top of the food chain, just as the name suggested, specialty moving. So just specialized transportation, just big, heavy, expensive, delicate, not so much time sensitive because the world was different back then, but just big, hard, difficult things to move. And that's that's what we were doing. Can you give us a lot of different examples? Because I mean, I think that would help a lot. Just tell us the types of things you're moving. Yeah. So rolling out store fixtures, brand new stores, lots of trade shows, a little bit of corporate events, big machinery. And then I joke about it because we used to ship a lot of electronics before it could fit in your pocket. Like I did a cell tower component rollout that was dozens of trucks. Medical devices frequently now are small, but when you look into the back bowels of hospitals, all of those machines are fairly big. So that would be, you know, stuff that you need the right piece of equipment and the right people to move it. And so when you came in there, I mean, like, how were you able to even to find clients? That's the main thing. If you're in sales, you've got to figure out a way to find a list of clients, call on them and, you know, make transactions. But it seems like, I don't know if they already had a lot of clients, so it was easy for you to just make the call or like. Tell us about that situation in sales and trying to generate more sales for the company. 
what I did is I went to the library and I got the Washington State Manufacturing Guide. I think that's what it was, but it basically had like all of the listings. And so I would go through different sections of that directory. And then I started pretty much in sort of the greater Seattle area, someplace I could drive to in like 90 minutes. So then I sort of back in the day, transcribed, photocopied off those pages. And then I started cold calling in and I did that for about six months and was able to sort of take that initial momentum and start asking for referrals systematically that 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 was the only cold calling I did. But I mean, I called on casket companies, hot tub manufacturers. I mean, if it was big and semi-expensive, I called on it. Like, I mean, you know, just all of it. Well, what was your pitch to a hot tub company? Oh God, (laughs) something awful. But here's what's changed so much. Here's what's wildly different is I think people didn't move so much in jobs. So in the mid nineties, I could actually call a traffic department or a marketing manager and get a meeting for a sales call. And then when you showed up, they expected you to be able to like conduct a sales call, right? And I got run out of a couple traffic departments because I didn't know what I was doing, but you figure that out, right? So it was actually pretty easy to get an appointment back in the day. I think what I've seen now is that it's almost impossible to get a face-to-face meeting. But if you get a face-to-face meeting, you have to like basically burn them to not get the business because there's just so little face-to-face contact. And that's the difference between 1997, 98, 99, and you know, 2020, 2021. Well, that makes sense. But let's jump back to the hot tub because I think we're all in the mood. So you call them, you're like, hey, y'all need better pricing on moving these to your customers' houses? Or are you getting them inbound from the manufacturers to those retail stores? Just tell me how that would generically go. Like, I don't even know how you pitch it and because if you can even save them money. Yeah, you're already smarter than I was because I had to learn some of what you're already asking initially. So Initially, I would call on them and then find out that they had company-owned trucks or whatever, like all that stuff. So what I sort of graduated to is I would prospect them on paper, and then I would sort of group them together, not by category, but by geographical location. And then I'd go troll all these industrial parks and try to find them and then see, do they have trucks there? How many docks do they have? Does the truck have the company name on it? All that stuff. So I got a little better. So I wasn't like, I mean, like I called on people and they're like, why would we need shipping? We do all of it ourselves. I'm like, uh, thanks. <laughs> you know, so yeah, we eventually got a little smarter. So by the time I was actually cold calling, you know, 30 or 40 people a day, whatever it was, I mean, I was fairly certain that at least there was some level of need. When I started it, we competed exclusively on price. I didn't know what else to talk to them about. So you'd go to these places in Seattle and see if they had like an all white moving truck versus the company name on the side. And if they did, you wrote it down and you're like, I'll write down at least 30 companies and then go ahead and call them the next day. Yeah. And a little bit of that, it started off with the manufacturer's director, whatever that thing was. And then as you go into the industrial parks, you're prospecting with your eyes too. So you're like, oh, wow, what's this? They got a bunch of docks, but they don't have any trucks or whatever. And then once you stumble upon, and I can't think of anything because it's been too long ago, but once you stumble upon one industry or one segment or whatever that has it, then you're like, well, how many other businesses are there, right? You just sort of jump sideways and say, well, let me call on all the competition, right? Again, it was a little different day, you know, different back then. I mean, it was brutal on some levels, but people were sort of tougher to actually get the sale, but they were way more willing to sort of help you out. You know what I mean? They're like, Hey, you're not going to get a shipment from me, but let me help you with this. Or you should call so-and-so or whatever. Like it's just how it was. Right. I mean, like eventually you had to really sort of own the craft and be able to sell them something. But like I said, it's almost the exact opposite now. 
it was much, much harder to close, I think, in a face-to-face meeting back then than it is today, but you got a lot more help and coaching (laughs) along the way. And now no coaching, almost impossible to get help. But if you meet with them face-to-face, I just don't know how you can't close. I mean, obviously if they're meeting with multiple people, they're only going to pick one, but like, it's so hard to get face-to-face. Would you just have a couple buttons undone as you went into that office and (laughs) had your hair out there nice and buff? Is that what did it? Well, there's no video on this for good reason, but no, and this is a hundred percent gospel. 52, I'm five foot seven and bald. At 27 or whatever I was, I was five foot seven and mostly bald. So part of the pitch at some point, not every time, but like when we knew that we were rolling and things were good, I'd say, look, our team is so good that I'm the pretty face. It was the opposite of what you're describing. And I could wear it well. It landed, I think, every time I said it, right? So no, it was the exact opposite of that. It seems like your best thing that you did was probably good to manufacturers first, right? Yeah. And then the other part, so store fixtures were easy to find because they're manufacturers and then they have multiple customers and they do rollouts and they do all that stuff. So store fixtures, we did a lot of store fixtures and then the especially moving had some trade show business. And so I didn't get access to house accounts right away. I had to first prove that I could sell some stuff before they'd let me talk to the actual customers. But then I did have better traction with the marketing departments because we were so credible. And I had some success with traffic and freight people, but we had way more success with the marketing people because they liked that I understood freight, but that I was really trying to see it from their perspective. And so we started gravitating towards marketing somewhere early on. And then trade shows were super easy to find because it used to be all hard copy back in the day, but you can find out who's going to be exhibiting at trade shows and that sort of stuff. And so then I called, I forgot that part. I definitely called down in that first six months, plenty of trade show people. Well, it's too bad you weren't doing sales today because you said you're going bald at 27. Yeah. Yeah. I would have too, but thanks to our sponsor, keeps.com forward slash millionaire, I don't have to do that anymore. And you could have been one of those guys back in the day. So sorry. That would have been better for all of us for sure. (laughs) I've never done a plug during a podcast, so I just thought it'd be funny to to do that. No, I'm all about it, man. Yeah, I'm on your side. We're in it together, man. This time the we is me. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So eventually it sounded like that you did well enough in sales that you're smart enough to try to think of like how to get these clients for the company. You were eventually able to take over the company? One of the things that happened along the way is we would see there was an opportunity to sort of organize the client's work better. And so we started putting systems in place and we did some technology tools. We did some web-based tools in 1997, which doesn't sound like much now, but back in 97, that was a pretty big deal, especially for a moving company. And so that got its own little traction, but the owner paid for it. He is a good guy. He was a good guy. He's an honorable guy, but he never really understood it. And we were charging for it. So he wasn't really opposed to it, but he just, he would make comments like, Dan, we're doing their work. And so he owned several agencies inside the Mayflower van line system, as well as the Atlas van line system when we switched over to that. And so his primary way of getting paid was hauling freight. So he liked a guy like me that sold a bunch of freight to fill up the trucks, but he made, he retained more percentage of the dollar if he hauled it than if he sold it. So he wasn't a bad guy, but he was more focused on sort of the asset and the actual physical delivery. Whereas I was focused on the customer and the information and the management of the information. And that's as it started to split. So eventually I bought the agency from him because we were just ethically, we're completely in alignment, but he was focused on assets and I was focused on customers and information. Well, how big was the company when you bought it? 
I think the annual revenue at that point was just under 8 million. Okay. How were you able to buy it just over years that you'd pay him back? He was in Chicago. I was in Seattle. So I flew back there and sat down and said, look, man, I want your chair. And I don't think I have to head the cane to get it. He knew that I could pull the customers. Like they didn't, you know, he knew it. I knew it. I also wanted a friend and I wanted the door open in case I fell on my face. I could go back and work for him. So I said, how about we come up with a number that's, you know, way less than you want to pay, but way more than I want to spend. And I want the customer service people. And I want all the email addresses and our cell phone numbers and all the web tools that we built. Essentially what the deal was is he got right of first refusal on every shipment for like five years. He got what he wanted, which was the bookings, you know, the hauling. And so there wasn't actually any hard dollars exchanged. And he took a big chance on us that we were going to continue to be successful in book freight. But yeah, that's how we did it. Well, I guess the revenue was at 8 million. So what was the value? What did you value at? We actually didn't value it. And look, he made plenty of money. I made a lot of money as a commission salesperson working together. So there was a high level of trust. And obviously you don't sit down and talk to somebody about buying it and then backdoor them. And you don't have that conversation if you don't trust the guy. So you can't speak to how much trust that the two of us had, but we basically just wrote a deal that said every truck shipment, not air and international, but every truck shipment was going to get routed to him first. And he could either take it and put in his system, or he'd leave it to us to service it how we wanted. And there was a rev share portion of every dollar that got booked. He got, I'd have to go back and look, it's been years, but like he got some portion of that. And so between those two mechanisms, I mean, he did just fine. It was easy for us to pay it. It was easy for let him to service it because he was a world-class service provider. So, And so you take it over 2003 and you're 34 years old? Yeah. Yeah. That's good, man. I don't know that I knew that, but yeah, (laughs) that's the math. Yeah. That's the math. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Thank you. Do the math and the math will tell you what to say. Yeah. No, I just, I haven't ever thought about how old I was, but yeah, no, that's it. Okay. So I guess over the last, let's say 16 up till 2020, which obviously was a huge blow. Mm -hmm. Did everything, if we kind of quickly summarize, did it slowly go up as far as revenues and employees? Like, can you just tell us what happened there between 2003 and 2020? More growth between 2003 and 2007 and started actually an asset-based local trucking company in Seattle. So when you add that in, there was plenty of revenue between the two companies and then got to a place that I hated my job. And I, you know, based on everything that we've talked about up to this point, I was pretty happy-go-lucky. I was happy for the first couple of years I owned the company and I was getting less happy as time went on. And there's multiple reasons for that. But the biggest reason was, is that I'd sort of lost sight of who I was serving. Like we definitely lost sight of that. And then the other part of it was, is that we didn't have a clear vision, but we didn't know that we were still just this like specialized at that point, as we continued to grow, we would just look for sort of complicated mismanaged operational freight systems. And so that got super clunky. So we hired a coach in the end of 2007 and went all in on a vision to just focus on events. And the reason why we focused on events is the fixture business was all but gone. At that point for us, it was still happening. We just weren't doing a lot of it. And we were doing a lot of marketing engagements, you know, product launches and that sort of stuff, trade shows, all those sorts of things. But what I had seen for almost a full decade at that point was more and more of our clients were spending more and more of their money on their own private events. And we did really cool things inside the event space. I felt like that's where we could really be great and world-class. So we went all in, in the beginning of 2008 on corporate events. 
we actually fired 70% of our customers going into 2008. So we just called them and said, we're not going to support this business anymore. We'll try to manage you in the transition, but here's a list of people we think can help you. Technically, if they were a trade show customer, we kept them, but we're really focusing on building and designing a company to be just world-class at nothing but corporate events. And so that's what we did. And so that's a big hit. 7% is big. And then if you're keeping score and doing the math right, the recession hit the event business a little late. COVID hit us early, but the recession hit us late. So it didn't really hit us until 2009. So we had another 70% drop. Uh, so that's a 91% drop over the course of 18 months. And so from that point forward, with a clear vision and economy coming back in between 2009, 10 to 2020, we came back two and a half times where we were before we took the whole thing apart and seven years in a row on the Inc. 5000 going into COVID. Thank you again for walking us through that. I mean, up to that point, again, this last year probably being the hardest, obviously, with point to point. What do you think was the hardest point after you became basically the owner of this company in, I guess, those, let's say, 17, 18 years? I actually think, I mean, not to make light of what happened to people, but like knowing when I sort of first really realized that the problem was me and the problem was we didn't have a vision, that was brutal, man. Like when we fired the customers going into 2008, we didn't let any employees go. Because I felt like, hey, this is a failure. It was a failure on my part, on leadership's part, to have a clear vision. I mean, they joined the company thinking we knew what the hell we were doing. We realized we didn't. And so the conversation at that kickoff was like, look, hey, this is what we're doing. This is our vision. If you can't get on board with the vision, please let us know. About a third of them actually said, you guys are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and left or weren't really happy. And then it was about another third that we figured out over time that the fit wasn't right. But then when we got last that, that to that last third, then we really took off. But sort of coming to that reality was substantially worse than what happened with COVID. I mean, COVID was like an immediate whatever, and like there was awful having to do what we did, but you know, that's just sort of the universe. The other one was all stuff that like, I felt like I had played a much more direct part in because I did, you know what I mean? Like COVID's COVID. And this is, I built this company without a vision and not knowing what the hell I was doing, right? So that was way harder, way more humbling. All right. And so today, basically, you're working on something called, was it Sales Sidekick? Do you want to just give us a brief overview of what you're doing? I guess the company that you're able to make in your free time since you had a lot of it this past year and like how you're supposed to allocate your time between this new maybe consulting company and your current company, the transportation company. Sure. We think we know the next several set of moves to grow point to point back up to where it is since we've done it a couple of times. So that one, we're keeping an eye on it, but we feel pretty good about that. And so with Sales Sidekick, what we're attempting to do as best we can is help people who really have, they've just found that their sales have stalled. And the folks that have asked us to help them right now, the first handful of customers that have come that we feel like we've been helpful to, they've all had one thing in common is they were businesses, you know, sometimes with more than one person, but the core entrepreneur or partners were instrumental in the delivery of the product or service. Like they were on the front line servicing the customer and they were phenomenal at it and they were great at it. And that had its own traction and it grew. And then as the business grew and they got off the front lines, sales stalled. And I was able to successfully make that transition at point to point. And as I talked to them, they're like, how did you go from being on the front line to not being anywhere even on the line and still continue to grow. And so we think we've uncoded that as best we can. So we help people make that transition of 
how you take your own individual secret sauce that made you great in the marketplace and really systematize it and create that value without you doing all the work. Well, don't sound so excited about it. <laughs> yes. Despite the animated personality, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a systems guy who when my head and heart connect, I get animated. And so my brain moves considerably faster and I see the pictures way better than I can articulate. Despite the name Sales Sidekick, it really is more about redesigning the business around systems. And what I have seen firsthand, I experienced it once directly, and I think we semi-stepped it the second time, is that business people try to scale their business before they actually have substantial, sustainable systems. And I didn't realize I was good at systems because everyone kept telling me I was a sales guy, but I'm actually really good at systems. And so we're able to help the business primarily around the customer journey system. So you can do that to scale. And that's really what we're doing with Sales Sidekick. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? like a Looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, Mining Key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? Perfect. So, well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You, you know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. You really did start <laughs> yeah. off with I thought so, too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon, too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. And so going forward, how about you personally? Like, do you plan on spending more time with the sales sidekick or, you know, versus your old company? If you put so many systems in there, do they not need you anymore? Just what is your plan going forward? I'd really love for point to point to grow back to be bigger and better without my direct involvement at all. Not that I'm too cool for it or anything like that. I think that would be just sort of a great accomplishment for the company itself. And it'd also be a great accomplishment for me to sort of support a business at that level and not be on, you know, such an integral part. It would also open up some opportunities for some other people that work for us. I'd really like to spend most of my time on the sales sidekick. There's a lot that we still have to figure out. There's still a lot that we have to get on paper and in a way that we can articulate it so people make sense. And that's where most of my time is going to go. Sounds exciting. Something new for you to work on other than transportation going forward, huh? A hundred percent. I would love to be helpful to anybody that thinks I could be helpful. I would understand if a bunch of folks are just like, whoa, I don't know how we made it work. Good for him. But if any of this made any sense... I'd love to be helpful. There's a struggle with me being able to articulate what we can actually produce. 
One of the reasons why we use we a lot is I've had the same work wife for 17 plus years. And there's other people that help implement my whiteboards that can translate for the rest of the free world from Dan's abstract thoughts. And but we're looking forward to trying to make that more of a reality for Sales Sidekick. Speaking of we, we never talked about you personally in your love life. Did you have any? Yeah. So I am ridiculously fortunate been married for a little over six years and have a almost six, almost four-year-old. So the oldest one is a couple of years into playing hockey and the youngest one is right about to start and everybody's happy and healthy and yeah, ridiculously fortunate. Well, you were a bachelor forever, huh? When I say like we've made and survived our mistakes, no, I'm nothing against my first wife. We were just incompatible. There wasn't a lot of drama that was part of the problem, but a lot of this stuff we've learned the hard way. I'm not an expert because I'm super bright. I'm an expert because we were fortunate enough to survive the mistakes we made and sort of figure out what worked. Like that's true in my personal life. It's true in my business life. We usually need a couple of runs at things to get it right, but we usually get it right eventually. So that's fortunate. How long are you married the first time? In the house together, 11 years, and then took almost two years to get divorced. So 13 years legally. Was that difficult to deal with or no? You know, we already got fairly personal, so we'll just make it a full-blown therapy session. So best I can tell is as I made all those changes in my personal life, I think I can only speak from my side. Part of what drew me to my first wife was that we didn't really have the ability to connect. And that was great for me because I was afraid of life and afraid of living. And so not having, and I don't mean sexually intimate, obviously, but having like a real intimate relationship was unbelievably terrifying to me. And I didn't understand that at the time, we're just all doing the best we can. So we got married and we had an incredible life that we built together with, you know, her wonderful family. And it looked great. She's beautiful and smart and well-educated and all that stuff. But like, there just wasn't really a marriage, right? Like we were more like roommates. And so it didn't take a long time to get divorced for any drama. It just took a long time to get divorced because of what was going on. So we went all in on the second one. There's a real relationship there and we connect on a very deep level. So it's great. When we're talking about we, are we talking about the non-human person next to you or your wife? The wife is, yeah. There's a whole life plan that we have together, right? So like, it's not just about our kids, it's about what she wants to accomplish and what we as a family want to accomplish, what we as a couple want to accomplish. And maybe it had some of that groundwork been done with my first wife, maybe we would end up in a different spot. I'd like to think if you got two cracks at anything, you'd do better the second time. I'd like to think that I am doing a better job in the second marriage. And I'd like to think that the first marriage would have went at least better had I shown up this well the first time. I don't know that we'd still be together, but it certainly would have been better. Oh, we've all gone full circle <laughs> yeah. listening to this interview, including the listener. So thank you for being a part of it and actually the main part of it, obviously. So if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best place for them to reach you, Dan? So Dan T. Rogers at LinkedIn. And one thing I'd like to put in, I got to put in like a real honest plug. If you don't realize how great Austin is, I can just <laughs> tell you, he is like, if you've made it this far, just be so grateful that Austin was part of this. Thank you, Austin. You've been, you know, you know what you've been. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. All right. I appreciate it. If y'all want to leave a podcast review, that won't hurt my feelings either. As long as it's not negative. Yeah, I will for sure. All right, Dan. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998, and I immediately 
called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.